Uh, my name is Ethan Richardson, and I work for Mockingbird, and I'm pleased to introduce our next speaker, our, our keynote speaker, and to inform you that this speaker's name is Francis Spufford, not Francis Spuford, as we have all called him at one point or another. <clears throat> he tells me that this is an equal opportunity issue, though, and not just an American issue. Francis has taught creative and life writing at Goldsmiths College in London since 2008. He lives just outside Cambridge and is married to Jessica Martin, an Anglican priest in three South Cambridgeshire parishes, get this, Duxford, Hinkston, and Ickleton. <clears throat> he is the author, most recently, of Unapologetic, why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense, which we have quoted almost in its entirety on the site. <clears throat> I had the honor of interviewing Francis over the phone for this first issue of the magazine, and the man is just as charming as he is on paper, which is a difficult feat. He also speaks as eloquently off the cuff as anyone I've ever heard. No, no pressure. We talked, among other things, about the Jesus we've often learned to conceptualize and the one really given to us in Christianity. And Francis described it this way. We are offered the open door to a generosity which thinks that law is the very beginning of what humans need. We're calling it radical is too small. You could call it conservative, and you would still slough it off like a skin and leave it way behind. He is somebody. He is love without cost controls engaged. He is what it looks like to love deliberately without self-protection. He is the state of unimaginable flow, redemptive flow, through the narrow doorway of a dying man. And I feel very glad and very grateful to introduce to you Francis Spuford. Spufford. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Because it's not like America has you know, no funny place names. There's a, there's a place in Pennsylvania called Cheesequake, for God's sake. I need, I need to start off with, with a couple of apologies. The first one is to um, anyone who's read my book and is aware of just how much I swear in it and is hoping I may do the same thing again. But the one place I don't swear is in churches, so sorry. Anyone who feels shortchanged, I will be happy to meet on the steps afterwards <laughs> when I will say something really obscene, if you want. Um, the, the second thing is that I've, I've reached the time of my life where I can no longer read my own handwriting so long as I've got my glasses on. So in order to talk to you, I'm going to have to take these off, um, and now you're all a blur, but a very well-disposed blur. Hi. Um, I want to talk about the creed, not the creed as we might feel it or pray it. I read a wonderful Lenten meditation on on the creed, which is um, around on the internet at the moment. Um, but what I want to think about is, is our relationship with the creed as, as believing Christians, people trying to be 
Orthodox Christians. Um, there are some people who would be quite surprised to hear me describe myself as, a, as, a, as an Orthodox Christian, um, since I have trouble with various propositions in Christian Orthodoxy. But although I am a liberal, I am a liberal saved by the blood of the Lamb, and as far as I'm concerned, Orthodox Christianity is, is what there is there to be believed. Um, and I say the creed with goodwill, um, and sometimes I manage to believe all of it, and sometimes it contains more hope than I can quite live up to. Um, but I find it far more powerful and far more interesting to know that those are the things which I am being asked to believe. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to talk about the difficulties in that and the obstacles that people, certainly in England, but I suspect in some parts of the United States too, find in being asked to sign up to something where you don't get to write it for yourself. Um, I mean, there are versions of Christianity you can, you can write for yourself, um, but speaking personally and slightly rudely, sorry, um, Unitarians make me feel a little bit tired. Um, and Bishop John Shelby Spong makes me want to lie down in a darkened room with a flannel over my head. And people who think that the whole thing is only a bunch of beautiful metaphors um, make me feel as if the new wine we were promised has been surreptitiously replaced by soapy dishwater. Um, the creed is difficult, but I would rather have the real difficult thing than something that has been chewed for me in advance to try and make it easier. Um, and there are also true things you can say about the creed which, which do make it easier. Not easier in the sense of watering it down, but easier in the sense of, of saying, actually, the difficulty isn't what you, what you thought it was quite. Because it is, after all, a proposition that, that the world turned upside down 2,000 years ago and has been upside down ever since. It's enormously counterintuitive, Christianity, and if you want surprises or astonishments or being constantly led to places you weren't expecting to go, Christianity has all of that. Um, it's, a, it's a dogma of liberation. It's a dogma that promises to let you out of whatever burdens you were carrying. Um, and it's also, a, it's also a dogma which, although at various times in the last 2,000 years has been tied in with various systems of power um, and versions of, kind of the Ancien Regime and ways in which the kind of the world looks as if it's armor-plated and very sure of itself, every time empires fall, 
the world changes and the one thing that floats onwards, turning out not to have needed any of that other stuff, is, is Christianity. It lives and it breathes and it slides free of all the oppressive containers that we have ever tried to put it inside. So yeah, it's a dogma of liberation and that helps, but not completely because it's still a dogma and dogmas are really difficult for us early 21st century people. Um, orthodoxy, the idea of orthodoxy is diff difficult for us. Um, orthodoxy, the very name is like a not very tempting thing. Um, think of how often we use words to do with unorthodoxy as our major cultural compliments these days. People go, yes, I'm a bit of a maverick. And hardly ever, um, actually, I'm a bit of a conformist. <laughs> um, I feel I've found the truth, and I, I, I'm just going to stick with it, if that's all right. Um, unorthodoxy always carries coded into it the suggestion of some fresh discovery, of some open-minded willingness to, to follow wherever the truth goes. Unorthodoxy is a, is a very powerful praise word in, in our societies at the moment. Um, and it goes along with assertions of, of intellectual honesty as well. Um, whereas, with something like the creed, you're not supposed to pick and choose. You're not supposed to knit your own version of it. Um, and yes, it can be part of your search, but people might say, how can a search really be a search when your destination is fixed in advance? Here it is on page 53 of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, for reasons too long and incredibly boring to explain, um, the Church of England no longer has a thing called the Book of Common Prayer. Um, so I'm really envious about this. Nice work. Um, page 53. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And amen. But if it's really a problem for you that that's the destination and you think, how can you be genuinely searching if you kind of feel you know where you're going, then, then to sign up for it, the only way you could do that would be surrendering some of the precious autonomy, your own right to decide, the, the choosing part of you that makes you you. And this is scary stuff. 
for moderns. Not much, in fact, comes scarier than this. Um, I come across it quite a lot in England as a reason for fearing religion. The idea being that religion is some kind of closed system, um, a world within which we don't get to be curious anymore, in which all questions have official answers, so you mustn't ask them anymore. Um, a world in which we prefer instructions to, to fiction, in which we prefer dogma to all that lovely free stuff. Hmm. And I, you know, I get the I get the impression that there is something similar going on here too. And that sometimes when you see a kind of touch of fear on the secular side of your culture wars arguments, when people start talking for no apparent reason about theocracy, that what, you know, when even very conservative Christians in the United States really don't think on theocratic lines. It's, it's, a, it's an anxiety that seems to come out of nowhere. Um, it's as if, as if there was something in religion that was going to come and get you. Some powerful thing that was going to grip you too tightly, like a kind of, like a hug that would never end. That sounds all right in some ways, doesn't it? But <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking fear here. Um, Sorry, my handwriting has also grown very small as time has gone on. Um, yeah. The fear that yourself would be, would be truncated, that by, that by saying yes to the creed, you would, be, you would be cutting off questioning and vital bits of you. But, and this is a rhetorical question, is that really how belief works? Short answer, no, but longer answer. What happens when you sign up to something? I think there is a kind of characteristic confusion here. Um, a piece of muddled thinking that sees the genuine power of belief to change you and change you in ways that you can't know in advance and therefore can't consent to in advance and to send you on the most potentially disconcerting and unpredictable journeys and interprets that change as a loss, as, as becoming less than yourself. Back to the creed. You say the creed and what happens? Well, I read it aloud. There are a bunch of propositions in there. Um, every church that's got a catechism is essentially expanding the creed into, into question and answer. But the creed doesn't just say that those things are true. It says you believe they're true. It's, it's an encounter. It's your search, your discovery, your freedom 
bumping up against some ancient, tough propositions. The proposition, above all, that Christ died for your sins. As Huckleberry Finn said, the propositions were tough but interesting. Um, no one can make you say the creed, even if they did, even if they forced you at gunpoint um, to say the creed, it still wouldn't count. They can't actually force you to, to mean the creed. It wouldn't mean anything if it was taken from you by force. Um, But what it does mean when you do it freely is that your, your unforced self has been brought into collision with something other, something that lies beyond the powers of your will, lies beyond whatever you know the world to be at this moment. And um, for me, that's what makes this much more interesting and rich as an encounter than one you could just make up yourself on your own terms because that would be as soft as wishes are whereas this has got some uncomfortable ancient hard furniture in it what does it mean if you assent to it well well belief is the word we use when we don't want to say we know. It's a word with a carefully different meaning. And sometimes we say we believe rather than we know because what we want to point to is the extra power of our assent. We want to say we believe. But sometimes we say we believe because we don't know and that particular Sunday morning we can't feel we know at all so we'll say we believe like somebody stepping out onto a tightrope whose other end is lost in the mists over there so we're saying that we will take these things as if they're true we're saying that we will walk ahead of our own power to be certain about this. We will take the risk. We will make the experiment of assent, which doesn't sound that coercive, really, does it? Um, and then what? Well, now, now it gets trickier because essentially, and I'm putting this in the most charged and provocative terms I can because I'm a Brit in New York, um, it is a declaration of non-independence. It just is. Sidetrack, quick political sidetrack. Um, this morning, Sally said that the British don't really study American history. And this is true. But I'm guessing that most of you don't study 18th century British history either. Do you? Anyone deeply, deeply attached to 18th century British history? I can't see you anyway, so that's all right. Um, so you probably don't know that when the Declaration of Independence reached London, there was applause in the House of Commons um, by the minority, not by the majority. 
um, because 1776 was actually a quarrel within Britain as well. Only with us, the good guys didn't win the argument for decades and decades after that. But there were, there were always Brits who thought that American independence was rather a good idea and raised a glass to General Washington at the time. Um, so, independence. H how's it going? You Is it working out all right on the... You don't write, you don't call, we worry about you. Um, but however, returning, returning to the, the matter at hand, having, I hope, successfully um, removed the poison from my provocative language there, um, it's a declaration of non-independence, obviously, in a way that doesn't interfere with all the desirable things about political declarations of, of independences, because, because it, it's a declaration that you didn't make yourself, that, that your existence is the result of somebody else's generosity, and that you're mended when you mess up in a church, um, in a way that's, that's not governed or controlled by, by your decisions. It doesn't happen on terms chosen by you. And here, if anywhere, is where the core of the threat must be, I think, because if you have to be your own author to call yourself self-possessed, then yes, you're in trouble here. And if you have to know yourself through and through with no dark places, then you're in trouble. And if you have to feel that you control what happens in your life and that you have earned every single good thing that ever happened to you and deserved every single bad one, then yes, you're in trouble. And if those are the things you need to call your soul your own, then you are really in trouble here. But just one cotton-picking moment, as we don't really say very much in the Church of England. Um, none of those things were true anyway. Yes, you didn't make yourself even in the most secular imaginable terms, you knew that already. There isn't a human living who isn't in a complicated kind of alchemical way the product of their parents' love, their parents' genetics, the, the high school they went to, um, the weather in the town they grew up, the people they fell in love with, the people they got married to, the bad things they did, the good things that they did, the things that, that happened to them, complete accident, all of that stuff is, is in your history and you weren't the author of those things. They are the material of your self-possession, they're what you've got to work with. You're still responsible, but you didn't make yourself happen. You did not awake last night on a slab with a lightning storm playing around your head and a tingly feeling in the bolts by the side of your head. No. Um, and you also 
don't know yourself all the way through. The 20th century spent acres of ink talking about the unconscious in a completely secular way of talking about how mysterious we are to ourselves and the extent to which we aren't unified, we aren't the creatures we take ourselves to be. We are constantly liable to surprise ourselves in both wonderful and dreadful ways. That's just true. Um, and we also live in a world of accidents and injustices. Um, and as well as the things that happen to us which we deserve, we're being constantly jostled by, by other people's behavior. Um, and that's just true as well. The only kind of self-possession which this threatens is a particular brittle stereotype of what self-possession should be, which is quite current around the world now. It's a kind of contemporary myth of what it might mean to be independent, in quotes. And, and maybe, I don't know, stereotypes happen for a reason. Um, they aren't, they're often malignant, but, but they usually have some kind of functional power. That's why, that's why they're, they're current. They do something for the people who speak them. And maybe, maybe this kind of contemporary myth of us as kind of solitary atoms floating in the void was useful once because, because it was a way of drawing attention to what we are in ourselves separately. There, there have been times in human history when all that people could see was connections and the stuff that got connected, the individual selves, was very hard to conceptualize as, as separate beings. And when John Locke drew his famous kind of cartoon picture of humans as separate formers of contracts with each other and atoms like, like Mr. Newton's atoms, then he was correcting our vision, but possibly over-correcting it, because we aren't solitary atoms in the void. Um, and realism calls for more than that. Realism calls for not a cartoon, but the most richly truthful picture of ourselves and our situation that we can that we can handle. And that, for me, is what the creed asks of us. Realism, including the uncomfortable parts of realism. We're not atoms in the void. Our boundaries to the world are not sealed. They're porous. And we're not solitary. We, we come into this world as part of a story that's already going on, a story's one story, did I say? Many stories. Stories of family, of faith, of place, of nation, of history. Many stories. And we have love to make in all senses of that. And we have work to do. And we have obligations to each other to sort out and weigh up and try and put in some kind of order and discharge as best we can decide how to act upon because, thank you, the Reverend John Dunn, no man is an island entire of himself, no woman neither.
And we are not clear to ourselves. We are not transparent. You don't get to do the equivalent of looking at an x-ray of your own psyche ever. To own yourself is not to know yourself, but to be in possession of, responsible for a quite mysterious package that you are going to go on unwrapping your life long and go on from time to time being either either wondering or appalled as you discover what the next layer of the wrapping reveals. And we do not live in a world wholly, neatly, reliably governed by justice. We're free, but we're not safe because anything might happen. And to begin with, we probably notice the downside of that. We notice that it's not fair. But as the realism settles in, we start to see the upside too. We start to, to notice that although we need justice, because it's certainly better than injustice, that isn't all we need. That's not enough to nourish us. Unless you're a saint, and actually saints tend to be very humble people who present themselves as sinners just like the rest of us. Unless you're a saint, you realize when you reach some point of maturity in your life that you are dragging around a kind of comet's tail of mistakes, of muddles and of failures of our connections with other people, failures of the obligations that we may think we owe to ourselves, failures in what we owe to God. And all seen through a glass darkly. And we start to see then that we might need something kinder than justice. And that's where our faith, our Christian orthodoxy, our creed, comes to the aid of our self-possession in a different way. Because I've missed something vital, haven't I? All of this has been about people and what we do. I've talked about the creed as an encounter. But the encounter the way I represented it just then, was between us and the propositions. But there is another party involved here, isn't there? If it's true, if what we declare we're going to live as if actually is true, then we doing the believing are not the only active players and the propositions in the creed are not cold statements, but live realities. And what it is telling us every time we go to meet it and say it is that before we even began tentatively, stumblingly, feeling our way into this stuff, a preemptive love had already set out to meet us, had already arrived 
long ago to offer with infinite patience to do as much as we will let him do of the loving and the working and the failing too. That part is very important for us. There it is in the background to everything, waiting with no coercion at all for us to notice it. There it is, a generosity older than mountains, older than the atoms of which the mountains are made. And yes, to take that help is to consent to be changed, which, yes, is scary because it requires another realistic recognition that you don't know what will happen. You don't know what will become of you. It's another surrender of an illusion of control. But this is a change in the direction of greater freedom, of richer self-possession. Not, not a loss of those things, not, not less of them, not a privation. He doesn't want to reprogram you. He doesn't want to steal you away from yourself. He doesn't want to contradict or override your history or even to install in the bathroom of your, you know, the bathroom of your soul some kind of decor you wouldn't like. He's not interested in, he's not interested in, he's not interested in treating you as, as a tabula rasa, as a document to be written on. Everything taken into the kingdom becomes more itself, not less, and that applies to us. It is the very definition of love that it doesn't treat what it loves, who it loves, instrumentally, as, as means to an end, as a, as a way of making something else happen. It doesn't treat the objects of love as tools or gadgets, but as precious in themselves, as they are, and as they might be. And he is the very definition of love. He is love. Love is him. Works both ways round. All the love we've ever felt is a reflection of him, one way or another, ultimately. And he is love all the way down from everlasting unto everlasting, as the psalm says. And therefore he is in the gift business, not the meddling business, not the strings attached business, not the repossession business. And he wants what he gives to thrive in itself, in all its strangeness and particular variation, all of it. Look at the healing miracles, which I do from time to time. Look at the way that Jesus always sends people on their way again. It's like the kind of almost inevitable last act of a healing miracle. Sometimes he goes, don't tell anyone. Other times he goes, go and say thank you at the temple. Other times he goes, go and wash. But almost always the last 
act of a healing miracle is him saying, right, off you go then. You're mended now. Go and do things. Up you get, on your way. Um, get busy, because you, know, you have things to do. Presumably, you've got a life. And the point of the miracle was that you get to do that stuff now. Go on, go, go. Um, he mends people so that they can be them, not that, so that they can, they can become unrecognizably altered. Um, in my book, I used the word, I used the word mended. And when it was translated into Dutch, I got an anxious email from the Dutch translator who said, um, I'm going to do a really terrible Dutch accent, sorry, um, who said, Francis, there is, there's a bit of a problem here. This, this word mended you use, it's like, um, it's the word in Dutch, it's the same word we use for bicycles. Um, you must mean something a bit more dignified, I think. I, th I think. Um, and I said, yeah, actually, actually, no, no, that, that's 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 the right one because I really do mean something as practical and simple as kind of mending a puncture or welding a kind of broken fork on a bicycle. Yes, the astonishing thing is that the Lord God of Hosts. The maker of this 14 billion year old manifest of wonders and horrors all around us does appear to be where we're concerned in the bicycle repair business. <laughs> what is more? For no payment at all. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And I really have no answer to that question um, and we aren't going to get an answer to that from God's point of view and we don't even need one because we can say this instead we are our own intact and better than intact restored upheld sustained forgiven. He, he really ain't going to come and get you because he came to love you long ago. We have We have time for a couple of questions before dinner. I know that smell is uh, permeating. Uh, any questions, uh, comments? Hey, I got my glasses back on. You didn't leave while I was talking. <laughs> Thank you. I hear he's good on his feet. Let's 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 come on. What do you got? Oh no! I've never seen this crowd so speechless. Anyone? Well, all right. They must be hungry. Okay. Thank you, Francis. You're Think welcome. about it for tomorrow.